0: Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we'll be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We'll be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. In his time as an executive, today's guest has weathered storms of change, gales of growth, and the ever-shifting culture of the American workplace. We'll cover off on a wealth of his experiences, including his time at Toys R Us, Benjamin Moore Paint, and how one of his biggest mistakes and failures also became one of the most valuable lessons of his life. He reports directly to Warren Buffett and is a consultant for Berkshire Hathaway. I'm happy to welcome to the show Mike Searles. Pleasure to be here, Joe. Mike, I I, uh, I know that everyone is really excited to hear from you. You've had a, a phenomenal career, most recently, which you were the CEO of Benjamin Moore Paint, billion-dollar uh, paint company, reporting to Warren Buffett directly. So I definitely want to ask you in a moment, what, is, what it's like to work with Warren Buffett? What is he like? But before I do, I know that you are today an in-house consultant for Berkshire Hathaway, you still report to Warren Buffett. Tell tell us what that means.
1: Well, when I told Warren and Greg Abell, who's his number two vice chairman, that I was going back to California, he asked me if I would consider being an in-house consultant. And I found out that Berkshire Hathaway is unique in so many wonderful ways. One of them is they really don't like outside consultants. And so... What they have done is some of the CEOs who have reached maturity, uh, as we would say, (laughs) are on a short list to be called upon by Berkshire Hathaway in the event that a company, one of 64, probably now 70 companies that Warren owns, needs some help in some way. And if our skill set fits, then we'll get a call
0: and we'll go help. So you are on call to help other companies, other CEOs in the Berkshire Hathaway universe, so 24-7. To speak. Wow, all right, and you're just getting started with that. I mean, how's it yep. going so
1: far? The wonderful part about leaving Benjamin Moore is I left it in the hands of a, a wonderful CEO who had actually been with the company for 32 years. So having left that in good hands, and he's a young man that's got a long, bright future, and I was worried about, what am I going to do? And so this is a wonderful transition. I get to spend time in California. And then uh, as assigned, I can travel around the country and maybe do some good for some others and still be part of the Berkshire family.
0: Well, it's a great testament to you because I think your original intention was to retire, as yep. you said. And, yep. and uh, it sounds like Warren Buffett said, we can't let you do that. Well, and
1: Greg Gable, his
0: number two, was,
1: was very kind and asked me if I would be interested. And I said, absolutely, yes.
0: Awesome. Tell us, what is it like to work with, report to Warren Buffett?
1: It's a question I get asked a lot, and I mm-hmm. love to answer it. He's revered for so many wonderful reasons, and certainly his financial success is well documented. But the person that we get to see having worked for Berkshire Hathaway is really the, the unique part. The integrity, the transparency, and the humility that somebody who's achieved that success is able to demonstrate in both business and human terms every day is an inspiration, mm-hmm. uh, just an inspiration to observe and it makes you proud to be part of a company with a leader that has those kinds of qualities and instills
0: them in the managers of the companies that that he runs. And and how does does he do that? What are are some of the ways you saw him be a model and instill those values?
1: Well, there's, there's public ways that if you've ever seen on Yahoo Finance, one of the annual Berkshire Hathaway meetings. Warren never talks about his successes. What he talks about is his failures. Hmm. I should have bought Amazon, and I didn't. And I was a fool. I missed it. I mean, here's a guy who's arguably the most successful investor of the 20th century, and he's talking about the things that he didn't do right. And that's an example for all of us. It's not about all the things we did right. What could I have done better? What could I have seen that I didn't see? So that's on the public side. And on the, on the private side, the degree to which Warren works to enforce intellectual honesty, transparency and integrity, and you've heard me quote a letter in a speech before about he sends each CEO each year a letter without going into all of the contents. The key point is the most important thing we have at Berkshire Hathaway is a reputation. We can afford to lose money, we can afford to lose a lot of money, but what we can't afford to do is lose one shred of our reputation. Mm-hmm. And if you see any activity that rises to that level, you call me, but you should understand that if you have any question as to whether something might be a little questionable, you're better off walking away. There's plenty of money to be made by hitting the ball in the center of the court. And if it's close to the lines, just assume it's out. So I've memorized this letter. I give a copy of it to every associate that ever joined the company. And it just talks to the importance of integrity and ethics and honesty and transparency in business. And if
0: more companies operated like that, I think the world would be a better place. Well, It's phenomenal. And it started with Warren really having a zero tolerance policy zero for- Or any kind of unethical behavior, which, especially these days where there are leadership crises politically and in business and so forth, it really starts with usually a breakdown in trust. And uh, he enforces it. He
1: owns close to 70 companies. To my knowledge, I think the the only one he ever sold was in 1970. (laughs) So he buys companies and he keeps them. He will turn CEOs, and I was the third CEO in 18 months. And the reason for the CEO's departures were not lack of performance in business. It was questionable performance on areas of transparency and integrity.
0: And if he sees a hint of that, then. Then he acts on it, Mike. One of the things I want to ask you a little bit about, which I think you're touching on, is is culture and how to really build great cultures and and the kind of advice you'd have for other people. But before I get into that, I and mean, let's just back up about you. Tell us a little bit about your your background, how you got started in business. You've had really an illustrious career. Well, now that I'm approaching 71, I'm going to cut this really short, okay?
1: (laughs) Went to school in Vermont and got an affinity for retail because I paid my way through school by working in a ski shop. Knew I had an affinity for merchandising and selling and took a job in a department store, a small regional department store on the East Coast out of school and spent 12 years there and went from the trainee up to the president of the company in the course of 12 years. And it was at that point that I thought the world was perfect and nothing needed to change. And then I got a call from one of the mentors that were at the beginning of my life named Charles Lazarus, who was the founder of Toys R Us. And... There's a story there that we probably don't
0: have time for about an interview that should have never occurred. But you learned something from that I, interview. I did, I Do you, did. You want to share what you learned? Okay. Because that, that can right. be valuable for yeah. for really anyone in any stage of their career. Mm-hmm. You, you really had a defining moment. Full full disclosure, one of the lessons I learned early in my
1: career as a result of this was being prepared. And you never know what opportunity is going to come your way on what day of the week. And you should always be prepared for what doors might open. And so I got called for an interview to meet the founder of Toys R Us during the glory days when they were the, the biggest gorilla in the jungle in the in the category killer process. Wasn't really interested in going to a toy store because I was a department store guy and that, that was where the world began. And ended, and but I wanted to see what I was worth, so I went to the interview for entirely the wrong reason, and. Sat down on the 23rd floor of Corn Ferry and in the course of five minutes realized I was sitting with a genius. This is a guy who, in his era, was to retail what Jeff Bezos and Amazon are in, in our world today. Mm-hmm. He had taken a category killer approach and taken toys out of the department store and into, into his world. Well, make a long story short, he had opened one prototype store of a new concept called Kids R Us, which he was interviewing me for to be president and he said to me, what did you think of the store? Now, the store was four miles from where I lived, And he knew that, he knew that it was right where you... Yep. And so I thought I could either try to fake this or I can be honest, and so I said, Mr. Lazarus, I haven't seen the store. And his face turned red, he pushed himself back from the table, got up, left the room and said, young man, this interview's over. Wow. And so I went home and told my wife that I had just lost the opportunity of a lifetime to learn from a genius and I wasn't prepared, and... It, it was a humiliating experience. And, the, and
0: for most people, that'd be the end of the story. That most people, that, that would that be the end of the story. Yes. I,
1: have a, I have a wife who I credit for my success who said, why don't you write him a letter? I said, oh, what good is a letter going to do? And so she said, just write him a letter. So I wrote a letter that basically said, I wasted your time. I realized too late that I was in the presence of greatness. And should we ever meet again, I'll know more about that prototype store than you do. And put it in the mail. And got a call two weeks later from the same recruiter who was thoroughly embarrassed by having put me in front of him the first time, who said to me, I don't know why he wants to see you, because clearly Charles had never told him about the letter, but he wants to meet you again. And then I was prepared, and I spent 10 wonderful years learning
0: uh, from from an icon about retail. It's interesting, though, being prepared is part of the lesson, but it also seems like for you, I mean, you, you made a mistake, and you, you know, one of the things we talk about in Dale Carnegie is if you make a mistake, admit yeah. it quickly and emphatically, and, and that was really the turning point. It was.
1: It was. Talk about learning from failure. It was a great lesson in not only being prepared, but reversing what seemed like something that couldn't be reversed in making
0: lemonade out of lemons, so... What an incredible turnaround. So so you you got the job. I got the job. Tell us more. What happened after that? It
1: was our mission, and this was Toys R Us was envied in many ways, as Amazon is today at the time. And my job was to build and do to Children's Apparel what Toys R Us had done to the toy business. And basically, the toy business was taken out of the department stores. And if you wanted a toy, you went to Toys R Us. So we were going to do in Children's Apparel what he did in Toys. Now, the, the good news is that we had the benefit of seeing the model, but the challenge of growing from zero to 250 stores across the country, and these were not small shops. Is that what you did, 200, zero to 250? And, and they were 25 to 35,000 square foot stores. Wow. So these were these were large products. And we did it from zero. I mean, we, we had three people when I when I started the company. And uh, we had our own floor in the Toys R Us building and we had the support, obviously, we had the bank of Toys R Us behind us, but both in execution
0: and personnel and rollout, it was a challenge. So let me, just a little digression, but, but as you were growing from zero to 250 stores, absolutely incredible story. What's one thing that if you were to point to, how, how did you do that? What's one thing that we could take away from that process? That's a great question. I I don't have an easy answer. The only answer I I can
1: give you is that we put a team together. We had a vision because they had done it. So it wasn't like we were trying to invent a new concept that didn't work. But we didn't know we couldn't do It's really, I think, the thing that drove us. We said, this is something that makes sense. We've seen it work in other areas. We can do it. The the hardest part was really scaling up as quickly as we had to scale up. And we had to hire field people, we had to hire merchants, we had to hire finance and backroom people and but it was absolutely if you go back and you say what's the what's the most fun you've ever had in retail, it was that time. It was the hardest I've ever worked. I didn't see my children grow up. I mean, that's a You've sad have talked statement. about
0: that as, a, as a, a bit of a regret, yep. but it couldn't have been any other way. At the time, what it, would you have done differently? I,
1: I don't think I could have done anything differently. I, I had a wonderful wife who understood what we were embarking on and knew it would be great for us long term, both professionally and financially. And she covered the bases that I couldn't. And I was on the road a lot looking at real estate and building a company. And as we both look back on it, it was a joyous time to to bring something out of the ground and to life in that in that kind of scale. It was something that very few
0: people get a chance to do. Talk talk about the people a little bit. I mean, to go from three employees to I don't know how many you had when you had 250 stores, right? Yeah. I mean, how did you motivate, inspire, build a culture in that company that supported that kind of growth and, and made it a thriving enterprise? Well, the first key part was surrounding myself with an executive. Team that had the
1: same energy and the same philosophy and the same style of behavior with, with people. Obviously, different skill sets. We had to have HR, we had operations, we had stores, fields, but we all shared one common goal, which was we're going to do something that hasn't been done. And that's a motivator that's rare. I mean, very few people get to do something that's never been done before and it brought us together as a team and when we started to enjoy success we didn't have to recruit
0: people people were recruiting us to come and join the the fund Success breeds more success, yeah. right? You kind of set that up and supported it. So fast forward a little bit. You made a decision to leave Toys R Us yes. eventually.
1: What did you do next? You talk about professionally some of the most the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life was walking into Charles's office and telling him that. And this is after we had built it and, and we had ten years of success. But I was a small division, even with that to a $20 billion toy company, and I wasn't the CEO. I was the president of my division, and I had been approached by a large corporation who had an apparel division, and the analogy that I gave Charles, which didn't make him enjoy the conversation anymore, was that, Charles, I'm riding in the passenger seat of a Cadillac. This is a great company. I love it. It's, it will always be part of my life, but I get a chance to drive a Ford. It's, it's not a Cadillac but I'll be the driver of the car mm-hmm. as opposed to an important passenger. And and he, he understood and we stayed in touch. I went to his 91st birthday uh, party long after he retired from Toys R Us and we stayed close for, for all those years. But that was the most difficult professional decision I've ever made.
0: So so you, you made it though. What helped you get over the hump? You must have been afraid in some sense. I, I was, that. yeah, I mean, I was, I looked around
1: and Toys R Us was such a wonderful company that they had they had people who stayed there for, for life. And I, I asked myself, money is not an issue, comfort is not an issue, enjoy the job, is this the only experience I want for the rest of my life? And I said, no, I think I need to grow. So something that, that uh, you and I have talked about before and certainly part of the Dale Carnegie culture, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and I knew if I was going to grow that I had to get uncomfortable, and, <laughs>
0: and I achieved yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, but that's true though, right? I mean, there's a great quote that everything we want is on the other side of fear, right? I mean, we really have to confront our fears if yeah. we ever want to grow and, and growth and comfort don't coexist, yeah. yes. you know? So so fast forward us, if you will. So you took that job, everything went beautifully. I mean, <laughs> how did that all work out and what, what happened next? Well, I knew I was stepping into a difficult situation and they uh, had
1: told me we were part of a US shoe company and they owned, obviously, a shoe operation. They owned LensCrafters, and they owned— Was
0: this a turnaround, by chance? Yeah, this was a turnaround. Okay. My,
1: my division was a turnaround. LensCrafters was running wonderfully well, but the apparel division, which was a collection of 1,500 mall stores under different names that your mother would know, uh, Casual Corner, Petite Sophisticates, Papagallo, and, and a number of brands, and the apparel group was struggling. And my job, when I was recruited, was to come in and, and turn that that group around. Unfortunately, in the end of my first year, we got approached by a hostile takeover from an Italian company who really wanted to buy the whole corporation just to get at LensCrafters because they were an optical company. And so, in the midst of my my dreams to turn around this uh, wonderful uh, apparel uh, collection of brands, we were purchased finally in a hostile-turned-friendly takeover, and the owner of the Italian firm, Signor Leonardo Delvecchio, I'll never forget the day, he uh, flew into to my offices. We're located in uh, Enfield, Connecticut, and uh, he didn't speak English. And so my goal was to take my part of the business and try to go to Bain and, and leverage it into a management buyout because I knew that the acquiring company wanted to just get lens crafters. And as it turned out, uh, after a brief introduction, Signor Leonardo Di Vecchio said through his interpreter, He said, I bought companies like yours in 19 different countries. And nodded to the interpreter, and I nodded to Signor Leonardo Di Vecchio. And then his second phrase, as I'm listening to him talk, smiling, and then the, the interpreter says, And each time I buy a company, I replace it, the CEO with somebody who speaks Italian. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> my. My four years of Spanish really didn't work out well there, <laughs> and so uh, that was. Uh, and they were very honorable in in how the transition. But you were basically
0: out of a position yeah. at that that time. Yeah, yeah. His his he brought his son in uh, from Italy to run the company. So so you must. I mean, how did you feel at this point? I mean, you you left the Cadillac. You yep. got into the Ford. Yeah, the Ford is. You're you're standing on the side of the road. Uh,
1: <laughs> financially financially, uh, it was a windfall because the hostile takeover. Was more than generous to its shareholders. But personally and professionally, I, I felt
0: regret and loss. It was a struggle. Do you have any advice about how to cope with that? I mean, that's something I mean people face all the time, and we struggle as people with disappointment, things that don't work out the way that we hope. I mean, how, how did you find yourself able to kind of work through a tough spot? I have a positive
1: philosophy in life, and I've always believed, as it has happened and turned out, uh, the old saying, when one door closes, another door opens. And while I was lamenting the fact that I didn't do something quick enough or I wish they hadn't come along about the company, I got a call from a venture group who had gotten my name somehow and they asked me if I was interested in running a company that they owned in California. And I met them and they were a wonderful group of people. They had bought this company, uh, an off-price company in San Diego, California. The negative was that we were very ensconced and my kids were in 7th grade and ninth grade. And so the good news was I found an opportunity that was really exciting. It was in a place that I wanted to be. But my my children had to leave their school and their
0: friends, and that was that was never easy. That's a tough tough situation. Yeah. Sure. One of the things that you talk about, I heard you speak to different groups, is you talk about learning from failure. Let's talk about that a little bit. I take failure of any
1: kind, whether it's a, an annual performance or in the case of, of the, the company that I wish I'd turned around more quickly. I take it personally, and I manage personally, I motivate personally, and I take failure personally. And what I've, what I've had to learn and now see as I'm older and wiser that without failure, you don't get the opportunity to learn or grow. And uh, if everybody's had a perfect life, I don't know who that is, but without that failure, I would not have been able to pursue some of the the opportunities that have led to me having what I think is, is absolutely a blessed
0: career. Well, you have had a blessed career, an incredible career. So fast forward this over to the role that you had at uh, Benjamin Moore, because it sounds like that was out of the blue, right? Yeah. I mean, you're in... You were Were some very interesting circumstances in which you yeah. received a call, I think. I, right? yeah.
1: I was at my son's wedding in uh, September 21st, 2013, and, and I got a call. It was a friend that worked for Berkshire Hathaway. And I answered the phone, and I said, hi, Ted. And the voice on the other end said, this is Warren Buffett. I naturally didn't believe the story. So I said, Ted, I I don't have time for this. My son is getting married. And then the voice goes, congratulations. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is really Warren Buffett. (laughs) And so he wanted to know if I was available to come to Omaha. He had been given my name by someone. And he had a company that he was interested in in, uh, having me run. So I told my wife, and we were supposed to host a a celebration for 250 people the next day as parents of the groom and so my wife said who was that on the phone I said it was Warren Buffett and he said what does she want I said he wants me to come to Omaha tomorrow
0: and she said what did you say I said absolutely I'll be there so <laughs> I, I, I did not please my wife that day I but I got they, to meet they couldn't him. have gone over well so, so you attended the wedding and then you got on a plane to Omaha wow and and what was that first meeting like I'm comfortable public
1: speaking. I'm comfortable one-on-one. I was close to catatonic is is the only way I can phrase it. When I was in his office, because now I've admired this man my entire professional life, I'm sitting in his office being interviewed for a job. I mean, that just doesn't happen. And so he said some pleasantries, and, and um, it was my turn to carry the conversation. And the only thing that came to my mind was I, I said, Mr. Buffett, I, I have a quote of yours on the wall of every company that I've run. So I felt good, I, I was speaking. Mm-hmm. And so he said, well, what quote is that? And I said, you were asked at an investor conference, how do you select the companies in which you invest Berkshire Hathaway's money? And he nodded, and he said, what was my answer? And I said, your answer, which I have framed, is that I buy companies that are so wonderful that even an idiot can run them, because <laughs> sooner or later, one will. So we laughed, we we talked, and the interview got more technical about the opportunity of Benjamin Moore, but, I was walking into a situation where there were two presidents in the course of a year that came and went. So the biggest challenge I had when I when I walked in the door was I wasn't a paint guy, and there were two people that preceded me that had created some level of chaos inside the company, and, and so my job was to quiet that down. And, and how did you do that? Well, I, I had one strike going against me because I was not a paint guy, and in the paint industry, if you didn't grow up in paint, you really shouldn't be talking about paint, much less being running a paint company. Mm-hmm. So... First of all, my, my style of how I deal with people was the bar had been set rather low before me. So my natural style was a win in how I deal and communicate with people. And then I listened. And um, I didn't tell people what I knew. I didn't tell people what they should be doing. I spent six months doing nothing. And ac- actually, Warren, Warren's uh, encouragement in that regard. I just listened and learned, asked a lot of questions. And when people, people are afraid of titles... And it doesn't matter how comfortable you are or how nice you are with people. People are afraid of titles. But I got them to a level of comfort over the course of time where I could get at the core issues and the core problems. And they they were all fixable. I mean, there was there was no magic wand that I had to wave. But
0: you just had to listen to the people and get them to a level where they would tell you what the problems were and how to fix them. So so the people issues can be tricky. You, you found that once you demonstrated that listening, that that was... I mean, what, what what kind of challenges did you have as you as you did that? And were you concerned at all about the urgency of the situation? I mean, you spent the time to to listen.
1: Well, it, it was a profitable company. It's owned by Berkshire Hathaway, so there was no fears that you know I so had. You, to you had imagine. the luxury of time. I had a luxury of time. Absolutely. What I did see rather quickly is that there was some people in the executive team that I can see that they had a authoritarian almost dictatorial style and not not through cooperation but through intimidation and my first job after I assessed both the operating issues of our franchisees and dealers was I realized if I'm going to remake this company into an image that I think is the right one I'm gonna have to make some changes so I had the hard conversations with people, and unfortunately, the talents and skills they had were fine, but the manner in which they directed and dealt with people, uh, cross functionally and down, were totally
0: out of line with the values. Now, were you able to talk to them about that? In other words, to give them an opportunity? I mean, did did they acknowledge or recognize that in themselves or was it a blind spot? I mean, what blind spot is the best way to say it. I I say it as uh, they had no emotional IQ. To be,
1: in my opinion, to to be a good executive, you have to be able to see how people see you. Uh, Regardless of your skill set, if you can't understand how you're being interpreted through how you're managing if you don't see it and that's that's the really hard problem with turning people over that that really have no emotional iq they don't understand they don't see the problem and you can talk to them about it you can say look this is how you're viewed you know look at look at the surveys look at the results of your group well you know i work them really hard that's
0: that's, that's why the ratings aren't That's good. a challenge, isn't it? I mean, it, and, and you've got some very, very talented people, but they can't necessarily see it, and they're not necessarily willing to change. And that seems like that's a career limiter, derailer. And it's, it's frustrating for them because to their mind
1: and under different leadership, quite frankly, that, that type of behavior was not just okay. It was emulated. So suddenly I come in and, and, you know, they think, well, he just wants to be warm and fuzzy. And I said, no, it's, it's not about being warm and fuzzy. It's being able to manage better when your people both trust and
0: respect you as opposed to fear you. And some people can change and some people can't. So, Mike, let me ask you a little bit about your your philosophy on people, because clearly there are are different leadership styles, right? And in fact, you encountered one where someone said, hey, I'm just driving people hard, bringing out their best. That was that person's philosophy. You know, you've got people who will talk about a tough leader, a Steve Jobs or, or whatnot, versus someone who might be more empathetic. They seem, you know, soft and so forth. But Talk a little bit about your philosophy about how to bring the best out in people. What have you done? What do you recommend? First of all, the, the, the right team and the right people, you've,
1: you've got to have a basic set of skills that, that you come to the job with. For the teams that I've created, I have to believe that we are all in it together, that everybody believes in the talents and the trust and the skills of their partners. And if you've put the right team together, and they've got the right commitment to each other, wonderful things happen. how do you as a leader set the standard for what, what that should be? By the people you hire. If you hire people that are not only good at what their um, job skill is, but they're good with people, I've found that trust is, is built when people believe that you're honest with them and that you're direct with them and that you trust them and that you're open. There's nobody in any company I've ever run that can't knock on my door or walk in the door and have a conversation with me. There's nobody's name that I don't know from the janitorial staff up to to the, the senior leadership team. And when you have that kind of accessibility is the key. If people know that they can come to their boss or to their boss's boss or, or share a problem or an opportunity, all good things happen. So to me, that that's critical to
0: my okay. success. I mean, I'm mean, i hearing you talk about being accessible. Yeah. I'm, I'm hearing you talk about really creating um, a culture where people feel respected. I mean, even to the point where you know their name, you know something about them, you recognize them. And and in addition,
1: transparency and, and informed. I share the results of our company all the way down to the lowest levels. They should know how we're doing. They should understand the challenges and, and the opportunities. And it's if you're transparent and you're accessible and you inform your population about what the opportunities and the strategy and the challenges are, good
0: things happen. So let me ask you, I just want to go a little further on this. It's probably easier to do that when things are going well. <laughs> When things aren't going well, when the company is maybe there's an economic issue or things are struggling, I mean, how do you balance transparency? How do you handle that? Well, here's the wonderful benefit. If you have an organization that you've got
1: that kind of trust already set, and people are are cooperating in part of a team and they believe in their leaders and they want you to succeed. When the hard times come, and they always come, it's like I look at it like an insurance policy. I've invested myself, our people have invested themselves in everybody in this company. And when the chips are down, those people will do whatever it takes to right the ship or get through the challenge. So you you can't just walk in and do that. You've gotta build that credibility, you've gotta build that insurance so the
0: day when that, that storm comes, and you say, I need you, they're going to be there. Yeah, I mean, so, so your advice right now to managers, CEOs, I mean, things are pretty good right now, thank goodness, right? But yep. part of your advice is, I mean, both from an integrity standpoint, but also from a practical standpoint, I mean, this is a time to make sure that we're being open with people, building that foundation, building trust, yep. letting them know where they stand, being accessible. Absolutely. And, and the storm will come, and, and uh, they will rise to the challenge. That's awesome. So it's, it's really even about being, developing a competitive advantage. I yeah. mean, really through people. Now you've, you've talked about culture is everything. Uh, speak a little bit more about that.
1: Going back to the lessons from Warren, we all know that examples are, are set at the top. But if you ensure that the ethics and the values of the company are the, the right ones, and certainly at Berkshire they are, if you ensure that that message goes down, not just to the CEO and not just to the leadership team, but as I said, I give what I consider a one-page statement that's a credo to live by from Warren Buffett to every new employee. And I say, if you stay with us a year, I hope you stay with us for your whole career. But if you stay with us for a year, take this with you to your next job. Because living by these values of honorableness, transparency, and the
0: highest of ethics, you'll have a great career and a great life. Phenomenal advice. Do you meet with every single new employee? Absolutely. Day one. And, and, and how many employees did you have at Benjamin Moore? Well,
1: we had two different facilities, 201 and then 400 in our main
0: office. So so, so part of the, for lack of a better term, onboarding experience was yeah. a meeting with you. Absolutely,
1: one-on-one in the office. And to see, and many of these are young kids that are beginning their career. Many of them are senior executives. But what's most fun is, is when the young ones come in and it's their first real job. And they get to be in the office of the president and you see that you know that they're gonna go home and they're gonna sit down at the dinner table and they're gonna say, you know what, I I just had a half hour conversation with the president of the company today and that will stay with them for a very long time. And it sets a tone the day they walk in the the
0: door of the company. Well, it sets a tone for them. It also sets a tone about who you are because as the president, the CEO of that company, for you to make the time for every new employee, irrespective of all the other things that you've got going on, really says something about how you feel about people it, I'd love to tell you it was it was a task but it was a joy. Great well Mike thank you so much for uh, being with me today. It's been phenomenal. my pleasure talking Jill. with you and you know, wishing you the best as always. Thanks very much Joe. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. This episode was recorded by Robin Berghaus and edited and mixed by Justin D. Wright of Seaplane Armada. Please consider rating this episode and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.